0: On Monday, April 26, 2021, a network of Florida streams, lakes, and marshes brought a lawsuit against a real estate developer. Through a legal representative, these bodies of water claim that an upcoming housing development threatens their ecosystem and violates their right to exist, to flow, and to be protected against pollution. The United States is only the latest country to pass legislation that considers aspects of the natural world to be legal entities. Several countries, mostly in the Global South, have paved the way, enshrining these rights in their constitutions, their laws, and their jurisprudence. Since 2008, Ecuador's constitution has recognized Pachamama, or Mother Nature, as an entity that must be protected. In 2011, an Ecuadorian judge declared the Vilcabamba River as a legal subject with the right to its own course and Colombia, Bangladesh, and New Zealand have enacted similar laws protecting rivers as well as forests, mountains, and entire territories. But what does it mean for bodies of water, animals, and all of nature to be granted legal rights? Can thinking of them as legal entities help us shift the way we conceive of nature and curb our destructive instincts? Welcome to the fourth installment of the Broken Nature podcast series. I'm Paola Antonelli. Today we will look at rivers and other bodies of water, at the important role they play in sustaining humanity and all other earthly species, at how they have been systematically exploited, and whether granting them legal rights can help protect them. We begin by speaking with Nathaniel Rich, whose most recent book, Second Nature, examines the influence humans exert on an alien planet and chronicles a few individuals' efforts to protect the changing environment.
1: We're in this moment of profound transition. I, I think it's important to recognize that from the just about the dawn of civilization to until fairly recently in human history, we've had this incredibly antagonistic, even violent relationship with the natural world where we've tried to dominate it and and destroy it and and clear, you know, clear it. It was seen as chaos and and you know, human beings have always tried to impose order. And it's only in in the last couple of centuries that we've begun to understand that our efforts um, have been devastating on on the great natural processes that support life on earth and I think we're now in this moment of reckoning where there's both a realization of the damage we've done and a resolve to try to repair this damage and and in our efforts to repair the damage we're you know hoping to rely on some of these advanced technologies that are, in some cases, responsible for creating the damage to begin with. So we're in this, this, this interesting moment where we have glimpses of a kind of this future that, that's arriving very quickly of where, where there's just massive intervention by human beings into the natural world, but it just doesn't sit right with us. You know, we, we still have these romantic ideas about nature, about wilderness, about um, what the natural world should be. And even though many of those ideas are are misplaced and based on, you know, myths that we tell ourselves, it still feels, I think it can often feel eerie or uncomfortable to move beyond it into a, you know, a future of designing novel species or rebuilding giant coastlines um, or, or creating food in in laboratories and and so on. And so the the stories in second nature are about people who are who are on the vanguard of this this, both of this, these discoveries and, and efforts to try to um, repair what's been lost.
0: At first it was humans treating nature as the enemy wrecking havoc on them. Then it was civilization wrecking havoc on nature. Now it's a godlike attitude in the attempt of recreating nature. Do you think we'll ever be able to understand that we are part of nature and that we're on the same level?
1: The key insight that we're having now is that there's there's nothing um natural about anything that we call nature in the world right now. You know, we've reconfigured and influenced just about every square inch of land and and cubic inch of the atmosphere, mostly through carelessness and neglect, um, sometimes through malice. But the fact is that um we've already altered nature um, beyond recognition. and the question is not, you know, should we intervene or, or not intervene in the future? It's, it's how can our interventions be less destructive, and how can they even be beneficial? How can we restore the qualities that that are now uh, that we now mourn having having lost?
0: It's also interesting to see how you talk about the idea of wilderness, this idea of uh, nature unkempt that instead will require a lot of management and a lot of control. Uh, to re-establish a balance. So it seems like it's really a back and forth until a balance hopefully will be found.
1: Yeah, there's there are all of these ironies where even the wildest, most far-reaching efforts at conservation, uh, things like uh, the biologist E.O. Wilson's plan to protect half of the, the globe, for instance, uh, as a as a wilderness refuge, even those, those kinds of utopian ideas still require a tremendous amount of intervention because... You know, even in that scenario, we're talking about armies policing borders to the wilderness. And we're talking about interventions in the wilderness to try to, you know, say, remove non-native species. Um, There's something very unsettling about that idea that it's not enough just to leave nature alone. We've forced ourselves into a, a situation where we have to intervene.
0: Several of the chapters in Second Nature deal with water directly or indirectly, but in particular, there are two in the first part of the book, which is called Crime Scene, interestingly. The first one in particular is called Dark Waters, and it's an important tale of mismanagement, but also of victory, at least partial victory in making the world aware of a gigantic problem. With the pollution of water, so can you tell us a little more about dark waters?
1: There was this uh, cattle farmer in West Virginia named Wilbur Tennant who became convinced that DuPont, which had an enormous factory not far away from his farm, he was convinced that DuPont was killing his cows um, because there was a a waste um, stream that that fed from factory. Uh, land into his property, and and the cows drank from this this creek, and 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 they were dying in, in horrific ways, and he couldn't get anybody to represent him in the community because everybody there had allegiances to DuPont, uh, and finally he turned to a friend whose grandson was a corporate lawyer in Cincinnati named Robert Balot. and Balot was was an environmental lawyer, but he wasn't the right kind of environmental lawyer he was a lawyer who defended chemical companies from environmental lawsuits but out of some sense of um nostalgia and and sort of family connection blot took on the case sort of a, as a lark and began to investigate it um casually at first and then more persistently uh using the techniques that he he had you know that he used as a, as a corporate defense attorney um you know he knew how these big chemical companies worked and Over the course of many years and incredible dogged persistence, he ended up uncovering um, what I think is not an overstatement uh, to say is one of the biggest criminal conspiracies in American corporate history, which is essentially that DuPont uh, had been using a chemical, a man-made chemical called PFOA uh, for decades in their factory that they knew to be poisonous and toxic and that they had uh you know not only poisoned this farmer's cows but had poisoned the whole community around uh the factory in West Virginia, and ultimately they rob discovered had poisoned the blood of of every living being in the in the world that these chemicals became so ubiquitous that there's literally no natural organism on the planet that when having its blood test it hasn't shown. Uh, at least traces of of PFOA, and um, and so the story is is about this multi now multi-decadal saga uh, of this one lawyer who has um, this life changing, identity changing uh, encounter with this poor cattle farmer, and uh, takes on you know the legal fight of a century to to take on the the world's biggest chemical corporation, and to hold them accountable for a global act of, of, uh, of water pollution and air pollution and, and ultimately, you know, biological pollution.
0: But what is amazing, besides this story, which is incredible, but it's also what you say in your essay is that there are more than 85,000 synthetic chemicals that are in regular circulation, and the American government has restricted the use of only six of them.
1: It's one of the most shocking things is the fact that the chemical industry in america and really globally is essentially unregulated you know there's this one major act of congress in the 70s the toxic and hazardous waste act that um regulates as you say a handful of, of chemicals but the industry is constantly inventing new chemicals all the time and the burden of of uh regulation falls on the companies themselves so the the federal government doesn't know if a chemical is dangerous unless a DuPont or Dow reports it to the government. And so there's there's very little incentive for, you know, a chemical company to tell on itself, especially as in the case of PFOA, when the industry, um, you know, when the products made, by a, made possible by a chemical can bring, you know, a billion, billion dollars of annual profit in the case of, of you know, Teflon. And so, you know, one of the most <laughs> disturbing parts of the story is... When uh, Balot learned that Dupont, as early as I think the early 1990s, knew that they had they had replacement chemicals that they could swap in um, that would be less harmful, and even though the experts, the the medical experts within these companies, argued that they should you know they should do just that, the the business executives at every at every point said refused, um, arguing that if anyone finds out what we're doing we're already on the hook legally so what difference does it make if we change the chemical now after decades and and furthermore that any any change might um risk the the business you know if the chemical doesn't work quite as well as the as pfoa then we might lose this enormous profit center and so you know it's the it's a kind level of comic book villainy that you don't encounter very much in 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 the world, although it does seem increasingly that we, we do. Um, but it, it, it took a lawyer like Balad, an insider, to uh, reveal this to the world.
0: Why can't the bodies of water themselves be protected by law and regulation? Why does it take so long and so far beyond even individual human cases for something to happen?
1: It's a combination of factors. I mean, in some cases, like with the chemical regulation of, of chemicals, there's no law there. And, and you know, politicians um, have very little incentive, um, it seems, to uh, issue the kinds of major regulatory laws that, that are, are necessary to police uh, these industries. Um, on the other hand, where there are laws on on the books... The, the entities responsible for enforcing the laws uh, refused to do it the West Virginia EPA um, the Department of Natural Resources there for instance um, he kept appealing to them over the years saying you know there are laws on the book West Virginia had had regulatory oversight over you know the kinds of things that were dumped into you know the Ohio River for instance um, but he couldn't get them to enforce it or, or to, to look at what he was he was finding in these files, and and the reason, of course, is that um, Dupont essentially owned the West Virginia uh, EPA. Dupont's own lawyers uh, would regularly leave Dupont to work in the West Virginia Department of Natural Resources, and so he found himself dealing, you know, with the same exact people, the same lawyers uh, at the state that he had been dealing with at. DuPont. Um, And so you do get the feeling of just a rigged system, um, especially when you're uh, dealing with with, uh, corporations as powerful as a a DuPont.
0: You finished the DuPont chapter saying that Billet now wants to basically represent every single US citizen because they have all been poisoned.
1: He he wants serious, he wants regulation of these chemicals. And it's not just PFOA and and other chemicals related to it it's it's all of the chemicals that you know we've discussed are completely unregulated unsupervised and just you know flushed into into the world by these companies without adequate oversight and so his you know he's suing dupont but really he's trying to hold the federal government responsible that's his ultimate goal it's to change the way we regulate and and use and um you know police these chemicals um these man-made chemicals that are constantly being um they were constantly being exposed to you know i think once the understanding of our our profound you know interconnectedness and and dependence on the health of the natural world um becomes a little bit you know sinks in a little bit more in in our um culture these are arguments that will become much easier to make because of course you can't have a healthy, you know, population. If you don't have healthy waters, if you don't have healthy forests and land, so I do think we're we're headed in that direction. But it's it's it'll probably take more than, uh, you know, a carefully argued lawsuit to to bring us there.
0: How do we begin to understand this interconnectedness? And how do we do it while recognizing that nature should be protected regardless of how it might benefit humanity? For many people in India, a country that at the time of this recording is experiencing its worst peak yet of the COVID-19 pandemic, life is dictated by the health of the country's rivers. Before the current crisis, we spoke with activist Vim Landuja, whose work with an organization called Swecha has focused on fighting pollution in the Yamuna River.
2: My journey actually started with this river called Yamuna, which is the capital river of India. It's also one of the most celebrated rivers. So we talk about, when you talk about India uh, as a Westerner or otherwise, you will think of Ganges. And the biggest or the largest tributary of Ganga slash Ganges is Yamuna.
0: You founded an important organization 21 years ago at this point.
2: So Swecha started as a campaign on the streets of Delhi to speak up on uh, on about yamuna to bring yamuna back to the mind map of the populace a river which actually gave us everything has gave us history was a goddess was celebrated but was completely neglected was actually stinking was almost barricaded to be not seen to be not witnessed by by people uh, in new delhi in that sense and that's how the organization started it and a lot of our work initially was shouting, screaming, fighting uh, to say, "Oh well, why don't you notice this? Don't you don't you get to see this every time you cross the bridge and go to go outside of Delhi?" Uh, and that's where all of us uh, got together. So the, it was anger, it was frustration, it was hope, and it was about future. The reason why I fight this battle today and every day, it's not for for any crazy romantic environmentalism. The reason why these conversations need to be center for is for reasons of health, reasons of economy, reasons of well-being. You know, a million and a half people die every year in India because of air pollution. Now, it's not my fascination for a blue sky or a clean air is not because, oh, well, it, it would feel good. It's not about feeling good. It's about that one breath. It's about that every second child who's actually suffering because of asthma or every second person who's dying because of diarrhea, because of drinking that polluted black jet water. These people who die because of pollution of rivers don't have a certificate that says dead because of pollution. And therefore, you will never be able to attribute this particular death or this particular public health crisis to a pollution-related problem. So it's, it's very systemic, and that needs to be understood and addressed.
0: Can you please tell us about the relationship of the Indian people to their rivers?
2: In Indian Indian culture, uh, all rivers are goddesses. Uh, like, for example, Ganga is worshipped, so it's not just a river; it's it's Mother Ganga. Similarly, Yamuna is actually Ma Yamuna, which means Mother Yamuna, and these are female goddesses. You know, when we said that the tribal uh, society or 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 the ancient society w- believed in nature worship. This was one of the, one of the ways of worshipping in Hinduism or in Indian culture, uh, in that sense, to worship your rivers. But rivers play a very, very important role for religious, cultural reasons, for economic reasons. But at the same time, unfortunately, almost 80 percent of surface water, which basically means rivers of our country, are completely polluted. And this is the data of government of India. So a a civilization, a country that actually worships its rivers, you know, worships its rivers, celebrates its rivers, calls uh, calls it goddess, and so on and so forth, but still in the process has completely forgotten about the river, has battered the river, has abandoned the river, and sometimes in the name of faith has actually poisoned the river.
0: I would like also to understand how you deal with a big force in India, which is religion. I imagine you're talking to priests and to religious leaders to bring them to the other side of environmentalism. And is that true? And how does that work?
2: We have engaged with religious leaders in two ways. One is conversational, that you actually bring them to the table and tell them, you know, the carrying capacity of the river, which was, say, 100 years ago is very, very different from the carrying capacity of Yamuna today. So you were able to sing, dance, jump, uh, bathe, pass your excreta into the river 100 or 200 years ago, and the river was able to take it. But that's not the same river. River doesn't have life anymore. And the other is confrontational. Sometimes you need to challenge them, their belief uh, in in the masses, or also legally. So, for example, there was a very very big event that happened a couple of years ago, which was a uh, uh, world culture festival one of the biggest spiritual gurus of of the world, at least of India, called Ravi Shankar. Uh, He organized a song, dance, chant festival uh, on the banks of Yamuna. And in the process of organizing this two or three day event, plundered the banks of River Yamuna. So we actually first had a conversation with him, requested him to not have it on the banks of Yamuna. Fine, you have all your right to chant and worship and believe in your faith. And you can call the president and the prime ministers of the world, but do it in a stadium, do it elsewhere. Ecologically fragile floodplains of Yamuna is not the place. But of course, as in, you know, how can they listen to someone like us? And that's where we actually had to go to the court and challenge this entire festival in the courts. The courts actually intervened, penalized the guru. Uh, He was actually asked to pay a couple of million uh, dollars but the event was allowed. The event was allowed because, you know, in the legal uh, terms, there's something called "fate accompli. It's too late, as in, the damage has happened. And that's the unfortunate reality that we actually see with many things. You know, we don't know, our, our, our institutions don't intervene at the right time.
0: Industry has tremendous responsibility, agency, and power. Have you been able to collaborate with industry, or have you been forced to confront industry only?
2: Last lockdown, the rivers and our skies became very, very clean. And there a lot of these stories all around the world, also in India, that, oh, well, suddenly Yamuna is blue and the sky, sky is blue and something that, that we had never imagined. That happened because industries were shut. And we haven't directly worked with the industries because, you know, at the end of the day, it's about regulation. It's about two things. It's about the quality of water or the amount of water that they actually pull out of the river that's one and the second is the quality of water and the quantity of water wastewater that they put back back into the river now they on paper are supposed to be regulating that managing that setting up effluent treatment plants or sewage treatment plants we have, we have been putting pressure on the government to really have better regulation better monitoring some companies have come forward and supported our work, but still the fact that if River is as black as it was 20 years ago, or more black than it was 20 years ago, which means things haven't moved in that right direction. Business interest, short-term economic gain has been the main main motive uh, unfortunately of our business groups, where they don't want to invest in in these systems, in in environment, which in a way is going to bring them better profit in the long run. Uh, But that that vision is missing, that wisdom is missing, unfortunately, in our business community.
0: What would you say was the most successful act of resistance that Swecha um, had success with in the past 21 years?
2: One impact that it has had, that today people talk about Yamuna. 21 years ago, there was no conversation about the river. In the last 21 years, we've taken scientists from EPA to to every single media house in, in, in the world has been taken... river Uh, we've taken parliamentarians of our country who matter and parliamentarians of other country who can matter uh, uh, to the river educationists researchers so you know bringing yamuna back to our narrative to our conversation has been one of our achievements there's nothing magical that we've been able to do but maybe we have paused the process of degeneration maybe we have stopped other rivers from degeneration. Maybe we've created hope in the minds of young people that they need to fight for their river bodies. Maybe we've actually made state more accountable, more responsible, and more vigilant that they can't just get away by really battering and selling inch by inch, liter by liter, yard by yard, our our, our natural resources. I think maybe we'll know in this lifetime or maybe next lifetime or maybe never whether our contribution, or contributions of many people like us, many environmentalists all around the world, if we've had any, we have made any difference. Maybe we all are fighting lost battles, but we don't have a choice but to fight them.
0: How can successful initiatives prevail in countries where nature continues to be attacked? And how can we begin to think about representing rivers and nature fairly when the system was created for the benefit of humans? We spoke to Belquis Izquierdo, a judge and indigenous woman belonging to the Arhuaco people in Colombia. Since 2018, she has been a magistrate in the Special Jurisdiction for Peace, a justice mechanism created within the framework of the Colombian Peace Agreements of 2016 to investigate and judge the crimes committed by the public force, the members of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia and other factions during the country's decades-long civil war. The JEP is a key institution of Colombia's transitional justice process, which has guided the country from a state of internal armed conflict to peace, at least momentary. In this capacity, Izquierdo has advocated for a shift in how we think about nature by declaring that it should be considered a victim of such crimes. This interview was conducted in Spanish by Anna Burkhardt and interpreted by Aurora Solat.
3: Yo quisiera en primer lugar a ustedes pueblo
4: First of all, I'd like to share with you that I'm from an indigenous people, the Aruacos of the Sierra Nevada of Santa Marta. There are four peoples that inhabit the Sierra, each with a strong cosmogony, so I have that great good fortune in our territory, we say that we are guardians of life, and in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta. We say that it's the heart of the world. So I think that we might begin from there to discuss why it's important to begin changing the way that we relate to nature and with the territory and with the environment. It's a change of paradigm, a change in the nature of logic itself. So
5: I'd like to talk about case number two, in which the Special Jurisdiction for Peace declared the specific territories of Ricaurte, Tumaco, and Barbacoas as victims of the Colombian armed conflict. I imagine such a decision would require extensive conversations and consultations with the communities inhabiting that territory. How does the court approach this? How do you begin the process of accrediting a whole territory as a legal subject?
3: So I zero.
4: couldn't talk about the territorial case number two, but I think that we could discuss the various approaches that the Special Jurisdiction for Peace has, an ethno-racial approach, a territorial approach, and a gender approach. That allows us, when we enter the territory, to understand what's important to those peoples, those communities. And what's important to those communities is not just protecting humans, but protecting all systems of life. And that's how we have to begin discussing a new legal problem. It's not just the defense of humans and addressing the crimes that have been committed against humans, but other subjects of rights that are indivisible from the people, the body, and the territory. It's a way of living. The way we legislate matters, the way in which the law is applied Matters and cannot exclude other normative systems that have at their heart principles and values that are interrelated. So we say that our approach is not anthropocentric. Our focus as indigenous peoples is complementary and relational, which is to say it's a triad. We can't each be pulling in in our own directions because that's not how life works. So these ways of thinking through this transitional justice, we have to validate them. We have to make them more visible as a proposal and as an alternative, not only for the peoples that are in the territory, but for society at large and perhaps even humanity. Because the defense of life and of the multiple systems of life is not the defense of humans as such. It's the defense of the planet. So other ways of knowing, other ways of feeling, of thinking... We have to begin opening our mind so that educational systems can also allow us to understand that there are other communities that have another kind of knowledge. When in Colombia we say that we have 115 indigenous peoples, 64 languages, and we span 30% of the territory of Colombia, and our territories hold many of the essential ecosystems, then you understand that a great deal of dialogue is necessary. So what are some of the practical
5: implications of such an accreditation? What does it mean for a river or a mountain to be legally represented in courts by a human being?
3: The Special Jurisdiction
4: for Peace is the judicial mechanism that was created as part of the peace agreement. Our mandate is to investigate, judge, and sanction grave human rights violations and infractions to international humanitarian law that have taken place as part of the armed conflict before December 1st, 2016. The Chamber for the Acknowledgement of Truth and Responsibility, where I work, we have seven macro cases open. Three of them are territorial. One of the main characteristics of these territorial cases is the presence of multiple collective subjects, be they indigenous peoples, Afro-Colombian peoples, and many other peasant communities.
5: This idea of the territory as life seems to be the key for your work as a magistrate. What are some of the concrete environmental threats that these territories are facing and which you have had to take into consideration as a magistrate on this case?
3: I'm
4: going to discuss this in general terms because I can't go into the particulars of the macro criminal patterns that we've been addressing when it comes to the destruction of nature the territory social environmental damage but in colombia we have had multiple bombs on oil pipelines how many barrels have poured into the river for how long how long did they remain how many ecosystems how many animals when anti personnel mines are installed how much pollution There are multiple, multiple environmental damages that are directly affecting all the ecosystems, as well as the health, the life and the dignity of all humans and non-humans. And we have many, many cases of this. So this is, of course,
5: not the first time that nature has been considered a legal subject by the courts. Can you talk about the legal precedent, both internationally and in Colombia, that has informed your thinking for case
4: number two?
3: There are fundamental
4: regulations related to the collective subjects of rights. In this case, we have laws number 4633, 4634, and 4635 that recognize, in abstract general terms, the territory as a victim. This was very important work that was done as part of the drafting of the law for victims. A protocol has been created for the relationship between the special jurisdiction for peace, indigenous justice, and afro columbian justice systems with a protocol for relating to all these different peoples. In this sense, once we opened case number two, the victims not only present their reports, but they request the accreditation of the community, but they also request the accreditation of the territory as a victim. So when we began this process of dialogue, we understood that it's not just about accrediting a territory overall, but going further to understand the cosmovision that each of these peoples has. And in the case of transitional justice, we try to make visible and dignify those particular relations that each collective subject has to its territory and that are important to life itself and to reparation. We have to ask, who can be the voice of the territory and its sacred places if it's a living territory? We talk about living territories because that's how Indigenous people feel it, think it, live it. And that's how it's stipulated in the Law of Origins of Indigenous People.
5: Is the law a useful tool to help us change our paradigms, to change the way we conceive of other species? You have talked about the importance of cultural specificity when thinking about nature as a legal subject, in this case of centering the Awá people who inhabit the territories discussed by case number two. Can these communities act as the legal representatives of the territory?
4: You're asking me a very important question. What does this imply in practice that a human being represent these entities. There are people that have trained to communicate with nature and the territory. That is, the voice that will be taken to these judicial situations is that voice of knowledge. It can't be any given voice. So here we face an important challenge. It's not about me trying to imagine what reparations for the Awa territory might look like those reparations have to be discussed with them. So who represents the Awad territory? They are the ones that have to determine who will represent it. So this represents a change in the relationships and the way that we act and the way that we make recommendations and the way that we organize the territory. Not thinking top-down, but rather bottom-up. Bringing proposals together so that the modes of protection that we have for sacred places... These cannot be protections invented by the transitional judge to protect a given place individually. They have to be protections that are already owned by the indigenous peoples, that they have been using in their communities, but that needs strengthening. So many might be thinking about the implications of the certification of the territory as a victim, guaranteeing given rights when we haven't even finished guaranteeing the cultural and economic rights of humans. But if you stand in the territory of these peoples, you understand that territory is identity. It's life itself. So that's where we have to begin breathing life into this approach that has always existed, the complementary relational approach of people, territory, and nature. It's all one thing.
0: At the time of this recording, Colombia is in the middle of a national strike that has led to large demonstrations against poverty and inequality that are moreover being exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic. As with other social and environmental struggles in the country, indigenous communities have been at the forefront of the resistance. Our guests today have shown us that the protection of natural environments cannot be achieved without addressing the needs of the communities that are closest to them. Granting legal rights to rivers may not guarantee their preservation, but it can help us change how we conceive of them, from seeing them as property, to understanding them as subjects with equal standing to humans. People like Belkis Izquierdo are working to achieve a true legal pluralism, one where different legal and social systems, including indigenous systems and ones that might belong solely to nature, coexist and complement each other. Thank you for listening to the MoMA Magazine podcast. Thanks to our guests, Nathaniel, Bimlendu, and Belkis, for sharing their time and knowledge with us. For more information about their work and this episode, check out moMA.org/slash/magazine. The Broken Nature podcast series is hosted by me, Paola Antonelli, and produced by Isabel Custodio, with research and writing by Anna Burkhardt. An assistant from Alex Halberstadt, Prudence Pfeiffer, and Leah Dickerman. Thank you to Allianz, MoMA's
2: partner for design and innovation.